0: Welcome to this Gateway Podcast. For more Gateway info, check out www.gateway-net.com. Enjoy. Over the last couple of weeks, I've been uh, doing a series on on a very, very thorny issue, uh, an issue that is hugely painful to some people. Uh, an issue that is incredibly difficult to think about and think theologically about. Um, I've been talking about divorce and remarriage. In the first message, I talked about the Old Testament grounds for divorce, from Deuteronomy 24, sexual unfaithfulness, from Exodus chapter 21 verses 10 through 11, it talks about a failure to provide food, a failure to provide clothing, and a failure to meet the needs of conjugal love. And where those things were present in a relationship, in the Old Testament, there were valid grounds for divorce. That was the law. Okay? And in the first message, we basically introduced the subject, and I went through what the Old Testament allowed. The Old Testament was... I mean, we tend to think of the Old Testament as, as somewhat legalistic um, and the New Testament is full of grace. And, but I want to tell you the Old Testament, the Mosaic law, in terms of the communities that were round about Israel, was very, very enlightened and very, very gracious to people. And these um, grounds for divorce weren't allowed in the surrounding communities. In the surrounding communities, the guy held all the cards. And if the woman was divorced, if she was cast out of the home, um, the man could come back and claim her any time he wanted to. So the chances of her being remarried were almost zilch, because who's going to invest in a relationship uh, emotionally, economically, and in every other way, and then find that at some crucial point, this guy from her past could simply arrive and take her and the children back? The Mosaic law prevented that as a possibility and was very, very gracious to particularly women who found themselves in this unenviable position. In the second message, well, let me just sum that up, by the way. When you go back and look at that list, you think, well, sexual unfaithfulness I can understand, but what on earth you know, would providing food and clothing really have to do? And conjugal love, okay, well, yeah, I can see where that fits. But if you summarize that, it looks like this. In our marriage vows, we make a commitment. The Jews made a commitment in their marriage vows to provide material support for one another, physical affection for one another, and to be sexually faithful. And um, those vows have traveled down through the centuries, through Judeo and into Christian uh, circles, and we essentially say very similar things. Uh, I've done many, many wedding ceremonies, obviously, and, and among the words that I hear couples speak to one another, many, many times, is the promise to nourish and cherish. Nourish has to do with food. Cherish has to do with warmth. Now, we aren't talking just specifically, I'll provide food and clothing for you. We understand the thought is wider than that, but it includes that. And there is a commitment, even today, in our marriage vows, to provide material support, physical affection, and sexual faithfulness. Now, the last week, we talked about the fact that Jesus essentially affirmed the Old Testament. Uh, he said, I didn't come to replace the law, I've come to fulfill the law. Not one jot, one tittle will pass away. It's going to be fulfilled. And we talked about the fact that Jesus actually affirmed the Old Testament grounds for divorce. Now, some of you, uh, and I talked about this in detail last week, uh, might be thinking of Matthew chapter 19 or Mark chapter 10, where the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for any cause? And Jesus said, no, it's not. Only in the case of sexual unfaithfulness. And as a result of that verse, a lot of us have concluded that Jesus actually rejected the Old Testament grounds for divorce and said there's one and one only, and it's sexual unfaithfulness. Now that leads to a situation that I've heard many times in pastoral ministry and it's an untenable one where people will say, listen, I know your husband beats you within an inch of your life and he doesn't feed your kids and all those things and you guys are on the bones of your rear end because of his stupidity, but you can't leave him unless there's sexual unfaithfulness. And I've heard that kind of thing said. And and I guess it's easy enough to come to that conclusion from that scripture if you don't know the background. But once you know the background, it is oh so clear. There were two rabbis, Hillel and Shammai, one a conservative, one a liberal. The liberal, Hillel, had looked at Deuteronomy 24 and come up with the conclusion that there were, in that passage, two reasons for divorce. One was any cause, And one was sexual unfaithfulness. What the passage actually said is if a man finds any cause for sexual unfaithfulness in his wife, he can put her away. But he divided that and said there are two reasons for divorce. One is sexual unfaithfulness and one is any cause. If she burns your dinner, if she's late home, if she wears uh, unacceptable clothing, if she speaks too loud in public. And these were all reasons that men used to divorce their wives once any clause became accepted, and it became accepted very, very quickly in Jewish society. And so men were literally divorcing their wives for any cause. When the Jews... By the way, Shammai, the conservative, said that's not right. There's only one reason for divorce in that scripture, and it's sexual unfaithfulness. And there, there was a major debate going on between these two groups. The debate was heated. And when they came to Jesus, they were asking about that debate. They weren't saying, as we sometimes assume, is there anything in the Old Testament that allows for divorce? That's not the question. The question is, what position of the debate do you fall on? Are you for Hillel? Are you for Shammai? Are you for any cause, or are you for sexual unfaithfulness? Jesus, in making the claim and rejecting any cause of divorce and saying it's sexual unfaithfulness. He was just taking the conservative line. But he was not rejecting the other grounds for divorce as they are found in the Old Testament. He assumed those as all his group did. When they asked, when they asked that question, they could not have been asking, is there any cause for divorce in the Old Testament? Because they knew the Old Testament. They knew the law, and they were, that question would then mean, is the law lawful? Which is a dumb question? It's a stupid question. It's a no question. They were asking about that debate, and Jesus said what he thought about that debate, but did not reject the Old Testament grounds for divorce. Okay. Then he went on, by the way, in that uh, in that encounter to correct some of their misperceptions and misconceptions about marriage. He said marriage is intended to be monogamous, not polygamous. It's intended to be lifelong. Divorce is allowable but not compulsory in cases of adultery. Because the rabbis had come up with the idea if there is unfaithfulness, divorce was compulsory. Jesus said forgiveness can trump it. And, And it's not required if there's the possibility of restoration. He also said marriage itself is not compulsory. He said, some people are eunuchs for the kingdom. Some people are eunuchs made by men. Not everybody will get married because the Jewish society said it was compulsory. They talked from Genesis chapter one, be fruitful and multiply. They talked that as a command. By the way, they also, out of that, produced another reason for divorce and that was infertility. Jesus, in saying this, removed that from the debate and said, that's not a reason for divorce. Okay, And then the last thing he said is, Any cause divorce is invalid. This thing that you're doing, putting away your wives for speaking too loudly and so on and so on, it's invalid. And we need to get back to a more conservative position, affirm the Old Testament marriage vows, and when there's a hard-heartedness toward breaking those vows, then there are grounds for divorce. Okay? That's a review. I want to just quickly move from there. If you take the position... and and many people do, if you take the position that Jesus was actually repudiating the Old Testament grounds for divorce and establishing one and one only, and that's sexual unfaithfulness, then when you come to Paul, you have a problem. Because Paul amended Jesus, right? In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15, he says this. If your husband or wife isn't a follower of the Lord and decides to divorce you, then you should agree to it. You are no longer bound to that person. After all, God chose you and wants you to live at peace. Now, here's Paul amending Jesus. Jesus says there's one cause, if, if you take this position. Jesus says there's one cause for divorce and one only, and it's sexual unfaithfulness. Here's Paul amending Jesus. And I want to just say, what impudence. Who would dare to amend Jesus? I mean, who wants to go and look at the Sermon on the Mount and say, you know what? I think we can improve on that. I think if we make a couple of changes, we can change this, Jesus, and make it more culturally relevant. We can, we can improve Jesus. I mean, it's a ridiculous proposition. And I, I'd like to suggest to you that in saying, in the case of abandonment, divorce and remarriage is a possibility, that Paul was not amending Jesus at all Like Jesus, Paul stood with the Shammai camp when it came to divorce and remarriage. He's in the tradition of the rabbinic thinking on Old Testament passages. Like Jesus, he assumes the Old Testament. Now, I'm not going to take the time to look in detail at Paul's arguments, but they are found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and you might like to look at it sometime. I just simply want to draw your attention to some of the principles behind his thinking. Now, remember the Shammai group recognized three grounds for divorce from Exodus 21 along with sexual unfaithfulness. They said there's sexual unfaithfulness from Deuteronomy 24. There is the failure to supply food. There is the failure to supply clothes. There is the failure to supply conjugal love. Now, Paul starts talking to the Corinthians, and he starts talking to them about conjugal love. Okay, Interesting, Paul reframes the debate. He doesn't talk about your conjugal rights. He starts talking about your conjugal obligations. He turns it around. Look at this passage where he starts talking to them. He says, Husband and wives should be fair with each other about having sex. A wife belongs to a husband instead of to herself, and a husband belongs to his wife instead of to himself. So don't refuse sex with each other unless you agree not to have sex for a little while in order to spend time in prayer. Then Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control this is conjugal love. And Paul starts talking into this. Thinking of the background of, of the Old Testament and the valid reasons for divorce, Paul, very, very familiar with this, starts talking about this. It, it's fascinating when you read. The Pharisees um, poured over the Scriptures. They knew them by heart, and they poured over them, and they said, typical Pharisaical approach to this, if we're supposed to provide food, How much? If we're supposed to provide clothing, how much? If there is supposed to be conjugal love in a relationship, how much? Let's define it. And define it they did. I mean it is I mean it's hilarious. They, they said they came up with these rules. Those employed in walk and work had to offer to their spouse conjugal love at least twice a week. That's the employed. Unless you were an ass driver. If you're an ass driver, you only had to do it once a week because they were the equivalent of people who worked away from home. If you were a camel driver, you're a long-haul trucker and you only had to do it once every 30 days. Sailors had to offer their partner conjugal love at least once every six months. If you were unemployed, you had to do it every day. There is a strong suggestion that this list was drawn up by unemployed Pharisees. Paul, Paul reframes the whole debate, not about legalistically what you must supply, but he talks about serving your partner, reframing the debate, recognizing the realities of it, but reframing it in a spirit of servanthood. I love the way the message translation does this. The marriage bed must be a place of mutuality the husband seeking to satisfy his wife, the wife seeking to satisfy husband. This isn't about demanding so much so so often. This is about seeking to honor and satisfy. Marriage is not a place to stand up for your rights. Marriage is a decision to serve the other, whether in bed or out. The idea of conjugal love is retained as part of the marriage commitment and of the vows, but it's reframed in a whole new spirit of servanthood. Now, Paul does the same with material Obligations. Okay. Uh, A little later on in that chapter, he says marriage involves you in all the nuts and bolts of domestic life, and 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 in this, you should be wanting to please your spouse. Now, now he isn't saying this negatively. He's simply—it's simply a recognition. You have you have promised in your vows a commitment to materially honor. To physically honor your partner. This is the nuts and bolts of domestic life. Now, like I say, the Pharisees discussed ad infinitum how much food was enough, how how many clothes were enough, and they created rules for how much a woman should cook and how much she should sew in order to meet these requirements. Paul, again, in contrast to the Pharisees, turns his back on the legalistic approach. And instead of outlining how much is needed, he talks about this servanthood, seeking to please your spouse, seeking to honor them, seeking to bless them. So he talks about conjugal love. He talks about materially providing for your partner. Then he he talks about another thing, and it's the equivalent of any cause. In the Greco-Roman world, the way that people divorced their spouse, more particularly the man divorcing the woman. Somebody actually said to me, by the way, last week, and it's a fair comment, Don, when you're talking about this, you're always talking about the guy who beats his wife within an inch of her life and the guy who's drinking large. and you know, What about when the woman fail? Hey, I'm enough of a realist to know that it takes two to tango, but historically, it has been true that, it, that it's been the men. And, and as I'm coming from a male perspective, I'm laying the blame in my court rather than yours, woman. But, but anyway, I realize it takes two to tango, okay? But in that situation... Divorce was enacted simply by walking out on your spouse or by throwing them out if you owned the home. You didn't need a reason, you simply just walked out. Their separation wasn't like ours. We separate and then maybe later divorce. We separate and talk about whether we'll get back together again. In the separation was the divorce in their instance. You just walked out and that was divorce. Uh, I, I think many of us fail to realize that Christianity has influenced Western culture in a way that has made it a lot more palatable for for many women. You know, uh, without wanting to be politically incorrect, but in Islam, all you have to do is say, I divorce you three times, and it's a done deal, okay? Uh, A man in Dubai divorced his wife in 2001 by a totally new method. He sent her a text on the phone. She failed to turn up to cook his tea on time, so he texted her, you're late, I divorce you. And it was the third time he'd told her that, and according to Islamic law, she was divorced. Now, she was shocked by uh, apparently you know, being able to be divorced by a text, so she took the issue to the Muslim court, and the court upheld the man's right. Just text her. Uh, and if it's the third time, it's a done deal. The ancient world was a bit like that, minus the texts. All right, All you had to do was say, out, or I'll walk out, and it was all over. Divorce by separation is equivalent to Jewish divorce by any cause. And Paul, like Jesus, says really c- clearly, this is not the way that you end marriages. And he affirmed Jesus' rejection of any cause or divorce by separation cause. In verse 10 and uh, 11, he says, And to the married I command, not I, but the Lord, a woman, not to be separated. That Again, you've got to read into it their understanding of separation, that's divorce. Don't do that. Don't divorce by separation from your husband. If perchance this has happened, you either remain single or you sort this issue out and get reconciled to your husband. And by the way, it's the same true for a husband. You don't use divorce by separation. He says, if you've taken that option, reverse it. Then to those who are the victims of divorce by separation, he says this, if the unbelieving one has done this to you, if they've separated, divorced by separation, then the Christian, the brother or the sister, is not in bondage to such, such, in such cases. God has called us to peace. Good News Bible says, in that case, the believer is free to act. And the only freedom that makes any sense in this context is the freedom to see the marriage end and to remarry. By the way, remember on the Old Testament divorce certificates, when a man gave his wife a divorce certificate, always the word said, you are now free to marry anybody else. And often they would put in brackets, as long as they're Jewish. Paul, by the way, says exactly the same thing. He says, you know, a widow if, or, or whatever, if you, can, you can remarry so long as it's in the Lord. Okay? Okay. I'd like to look, by the way, so so I'm not going to go into detail. You can go back over it. I'd I'd like to look at one more scripture that people often turn to in Paul's writing and say Paul was against divorce and he was against any divorcee holding any office in 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 the church. And it's found in 1 Timothy 3. It says, this is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless. And then here's the phrase, he must be the husband of one wife. Some people have used this passage to claim that a divorcee can't hold any kind of office in the church. They can be forgiven of the sin, but they've been tainted in a way that they can't hold public office. Um, obviously, since a divorcee is remarried and has more than one wife, they are disqualified. But that, that passage, legal, legally applied like that, would also count out a widower or a widow, because okay? they've had more than... One wife and you 've got to stop and say what was the author 's intent here i 'm not going to take the time simply because we don 't have it to look in detail, but let me simply say to you paul 's most likely intention was here suggesting that the person who 's applying to be a bishop or wants to be a bishop needs to be faithful to his wife a one woman man is not a bad translation okay let him be a one woman man you 've heard I'm sure you've heard it said of people who are married, oh, he's got eyes for everybody. The bishop must have eyes for one. He's a one-woman man. Okay, that's more than likely. Not only the literal translation of that passage, but the author's intent. David Instone Brewer says this, uh, in this context, it was necessary to make sure that the leaders of the church were people who were known to be faithful to their partners. It was not enough that they were technically faithful in the Greco-Roman world. One could have a mistress without being guilty of adultery. They had to be known as someone who has eyes for only one woman, as we would say in modern English. That is a husband of one wife. Okay. As you you look at this, it seems to me that Paul and Jesus were saying the same things. They were speaking the same truths to different cultures, and the principles are clear. Believers shouldn't be the cause of divorce, and they shouldn't break their marriage vows. Believers shouldn't accept easy divorce options. Where there's hard-heartedness in the breaking of the marriage vows, there is grounds for divorce. They recognised that the hard-hearted breaking of vows to provide material support, physical affection and sexual sexual unfaithfulness were in fact grounds for divorce. The very fact that Paul speaks about these as obligations within marriage applies that he understood them and he accepted them. if you want to take this further, and and I recognize that some of you might, because some of what I'm saying will be very, very new to some of you people who have been raised in no divorce, no remarriage backgrounds. I really recommend to you David Instone Brewer's material. He is a magnificent scholar. He's given his life to studying this issue, and I I think what he's done is both biblical and gracious, so you might like to follow it through. Let me try and finish this morning by kind of trying to apply this stuff to the 21st century, to where we live. These things, the need to be sexually faithful, the need to provide food, clothing, conjugal love. How does this work in our relationships? Well, I think sexual faithfulness is relatively easy to understand and apply in our age as it is in any age. When we commit ourselves and our vows to another person, we commit ourselves to Fidelity you and you alone. I have eyes for one. All right, so that's relatively easy. By the way, if I can just say this, um, I think sometimes it's very, very easy to condemn the adulterer in a relationship while many, many times we ignore the rift that caused and created the circumstances for that adultery to occur. I think too often a spouse who has been starved for physical affection falls into the arms of another person and is roundly condemned by all. And, and we, don't, we don't know how easy that is when there has been that long period of affection starvation. Uh, I'm not suggesting that the action is excusable. But I, but I think the context is important in understanding people's actions. And I just think it's too easy for us as the church to load our guns and blast. And we are brilliant at killing our wounded. And I think sometimes we would just be wiser to love them, not to, not to affirm their actions necessarily, maybe sometimes to speak the truth that needs to be spoken but not to be judgmental and legalistic and condemning either. I just somehow feel that while Jesus wouldn't necessarily affirm an adulterous behavior, he would understand something of what might have led to that and be gracious in his rebuke and correction of the situation. Does that make sense? Is that all right? Okay, sexual unfaithfulness is reasonably easy. The principle behind neglect of food and clothing, I think, can be summarized as material support. In our marriage vows, as I've said, we commit to doing all we can to provide for those we love. And when there is a hard-hearted and consistent disregard for our partners, then we have clearly forsaken our promises. By the way, another thing that happens in Christian circles, and I know I'm wandering all over the place this morning, but I'm trying to tie it together, so I hope you can hear me. But, but I've heard people say, look, I know he's been hard-hearted and done all these things, and I know he's separated, but don't you initiate the divorce. Let him do it. And so people are left, sometimes for years, absolutely stranded because they don't want their fingerprints on the divorce thing. They don't want to be the one seen to initiate the divorce because it kind of can be traced back and said, you divorced him, he didn't divorce you. Now hang on a minute, I'm using the he, can be she, but um, he's gone off, abandoned you, living with another woman, just hasn't done the divorce thing, and this person... Is now you've got to stop and say, where did... The does the person who initiate the divorce really cause the divorce or is the divorce caused by the hard-hearted breaking of the vows and this is simply enacting what is already dead? This is the burial of a body that is already dead. It's not killing it. And I think we need to distinguish between those two things otherwise we can end up sometimes harshly punishing somebody who is already suffering greatly and does not deserve to be punished anymore. The principle of conjugal love is that of physical and emotional affection, and if I might say this, I do not think that should narrowly be defined as sexual intercourse. I think physical affection can be expressed and demonstrated in many different and numerous ways. Uh, The reality is often a hug is way more appropriate than sexual intercourse. Um, Sometimes due to illness or whatever else, those Aspects of our lives are put on hold. I don't think the Bible says, hey, since that's not happening, you have grounds for divorce. I think affection, physical affection, is way wider than simply just a narrow definition of conjugal love. Neglect of material support is equivalent to and often becomes physical abuse neglect of physical and emotional affection is what we term emotional abuse. And in my opinion, for what it's worth, and it might not be worth a whole lot, but I believe these still constitute grounds for a valid divorce. Now what I'm saying is, I mentioned this last week, I want to wind it up by saying, I know that there are some who will be saying well, I'm looking for an out and you've just provided it. Or you might be thinking, I know somebody who's looking for an out and man, have you just paved the way. This might be so, but such a person generally finds a pretext that they need to do what they've got to do and you know, what they've got in their heart already anyway. And I'm not talking to people like that. I, I, I refuse to allow those kind of people to set the agenda in the tone of our discussion. I realize some people will take me wrong. Uh, They took Paul wrong in his day. When he preached the gospel, they came up with the conclusion, so since this grace is such a wonderful thing, we can go and do whatever we like because God's glorified and shown us grace. So hey, why not let's sin the more? Martin Lloyd-Jones, by the way, said, if when you've preached the gospel, people do not ask, does this mean we can sin even more? Then he said, you haven't preached the gospel. Sometimes in our fear of lowering the bar, we push it even higher than it's intended to be. And and uh, I know that there'll be people who are you know wanting an easy out. I'm not talking to you. You need to just confront that and, and deal with God about that. But I want to try and look at this biblically. Say, so, well, Don, what do you do with people who come to you with reasonable regularity and say, "I want out because I just don't love them anymore"? Does that constitute grounds for a divorce. Are these valid grounds? I just don't love them anymore. The zing has gone. You know, we're just going through the motions. Is that valid? No, I don't think it qualifies at all. If, number one, it's a total misunderstanding of what love's about. Generally, those people are talking about, I've lost all romantic feelings for my, fa- my spouse. You know, I've lost that love and feeling. <laughs> oh, oh, you know you know what you want to do with that loving feeling? Shoot it in the head. Love isn't the same as romance. Ideally, they should flow together, but everybody in a relationship recognizes that there are seasons where the romance comes and where it goes. Love holds tight during those seasons. Love is a commitment that we make, not primarily a feeling that we feel. And friends, if you say, well, I just don't love them anymore, that's an indictment against you. That's not, you know, we say, "Oh, I just don't love them. Love is a verb. Love is an action. And when you say, I don't love my spouse anymore, you have just said, I'm not serving them. I'm not giving myself for them. I'm not sacrificing for them. That's not about them. That's about you, mate. And the answer is, sort it out. Start doing the loving thing. And it's amazing how the loving feelings return. Jesus emphasized that divorce should only occur when there is the hard-hearted breaking of marriage vows on the part of your partner. And frankly, falling out of love does not qualify. You might be sitting there thinking, well, okay, Don, you've been fairly clear on the issues for divorce and the valid grounds, but I'm not quite clear on the idea of remarriage. The Old Testament allowed, in fact, expected that a divorced person would remarry. The New Testament doesn't say a whole lot about that issue, primarily because it was assumed. There's that one passage where Jesus seemed to condemn remarriage, but as we looked on closer examination, all that he was saying is remarriage in the case of an invalid, any cause divorce isn't, isn't good. Paul allowed remarriage in the case of a believer that was abandoned by their unbelieving spouse. It's really important to understand that everybody at that time believed divorcees could, and in most cases should, be remarried. That was the purpose of the divorce certificate. You are now free to remarry any Jewish man you want. Remarriage for divorcees was the norm, not the exception. If Jesus had disagreed with that, then surely he would have said so. He clarified all the other areas of Confusion, polygamy, all those kinds of things he spoke to. He didn't address that and I'd like to suggest while there's danger in arguing from silence, I'd like to suggest that the silence is really surprising on this issue and it indicates that he accepted what was generally understood by all in that setting. Now some of you might be thinking that's fine for the innocent party, Don, but where does that leave the guilty party? The one who perhaps was responsible for the breakup, can they ever be remarried? Well, for what it's worth, again, my opinion, is from what I can ascertain, I think that the guilty person should always at first, if possible, restore what they were responsible for breaking. If reconciliation is possible, then I think it should be pursued. If you've you know, divorced by separation, Paul said, if you've done that and you can go back and sort it out, then go back and sort it out. And I think, I think there should be that attempt. It's not always possible. At the very least, there should be repentance. There should be apologies sought for wrongdoing. In, the many, in many cases, reconciliation won't be possible. Perhaps the damage done is so great that the victim doesn't want any reconciliation. That needs to be respected. In some cases, with the passing of time, the innocent party has remarried or perhaps the guilty party left and remarried and now has another family. To break up a relationship in the name of reconciliation simply is not wise or feasible in my view. To break up a second relationship is hard to justify. The first one was bad enough. It's like trying to put right a wrong by committing another wrong and I don't think it's wise. I think marriage, even for the guilty party, is possible. But I'd like to suggest that it's after repentance, it's after the uh, the passing of an appropriate amount of time, and it should be done only with really good and godly counsel. God forgives the repentant divorcee just as he forgives any other sinner who repents. It doesn't mean, by the way, that there won't be ongoing consequences as a result of our sin. I I don't have and I don't mean to convey a casual or cavalier attitude toward divorce and remarriage. I think divorce is always incredibly destructive and I think wherever possible it should be avoided. Once we've made our vows, we should do everything within us and by God's grace to fulfill those vows. People say God's intention was never to have divorce. Of course it wasn't. God's intention was also never to have sin. But he recognized that in a broken world, we make choices that sometimes aren't that wise. And he made provision for situations where bad choices were taken. Some people say, What? But Malachi says, God hates divorce. I've said each time, and I'm trying to convey an attitude here, each time I've said that, I've said, Yes, he does. You know why? Not because he just. Well, I hate divorce. I hate people that do that. It really ticks me off. It breaks what I, what I intended and, and I, just, I just hate it. He doesn't hate it for those reasons. He hates it because he himself is a divorcee. He committed himself to Israel. He he talked about being married to them. He talked about them being his bride. And the Bible talks in Jeremiah 3, Hosea chapter 2, about him finally getting to a place where with such hard-heartedness they had turned away from him as their husband that he finally wrote them out the divorce certificate. And when he says, I hate divorce, he says it because he understands the brokenness, the shattering, the splintering, the hurt, the harm, he understands it and he says, man, I hate it when that happens. I just hate it because he knows the heartbreak. Okay? I, I am not trying to create a cavalier or casual attitude toward marriage. And I, I, please don't take away from what I've said that kind of message because it's not what I'm saying. You know, Karen and I have been married for close to 35 years. It's Like any marriage that's been that long, we've had our good times and we've had our really, really hard times. But one thing that we have never done, in the midst of all that we've gone through, in the midst of times where, you know, I'm in one room and she's in another, and I know that that never happens in your household, but we are barely speaking for some reason or other, we have never used the D word. We have never used the D word because it's not in the picture someone once said to Billy Graham's wife have you ever thought about divorcing Billy she said never I have thought of murder many times (laughs) but never ever divorce (laughs) and I don't know about you but I identify with that I want to finish next week um, it probably went longer than I planned, but I want to talk next week about the damage that divorce does and people that are thinking about divorce to try and make them think a little longer. It's, it's much easier to create something new than to go back and restore something old. But we follow a God that went back and recreated He went back and redeemed. He went back and restored. It would have been easier. In fact, he said to Moses on one occasion, I'll just wipe it clean and I'll start afresh with you. Moses said, no, don't do that, Lord. And he didn't because it's not in his heart to do that. And we follow that kind of God. And I want to tell you, while it might seem easier to forget that and create something new, there is something about restoration and redemption that God wants us to mirror. And I want to tell you something else too in finishing. I know I've said this about five times, but I'm ready to do it. There are people who think, I've got to end this pain, and divorce is the easiest one, uh, way out, create all kinds of other pain. Not just for themselves, but for their kids as well. And I want to talk about that next week as we wind this series up. Okay? Still talking to me? Okay, let's stand. Some of you are thinking, I'm talking to you, all right? You wouldn't believe what I want to say to you. Father, thank you for the power of your word. Thank you beyond the power of the words is the incredible grace that, that um, is the substance of those words. And we are awed again and again by your mercy by your incredible kindness, by your love, by your willingness to reach out to we who do not deserve it, to pick us up from broken situations that have been broken, Lord, because of our own foolishness. And you don't reject us. You don't say you got what you deserved. You step in and you help us. And we're so grateful. Please help us to be gracious like you are. Please help us to be kind as you are. By the power of your Spirit living in us, help us more and more and more to look and think and act like you. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name that he might be praised and that the church might be a place of refuge and hope for people that are broken. Amen. Amen. Once again, thanks for listening to this Gateway Podcast. For sermon notes and more information, check out www.gateway-med.com.